Okay. Well, it's going to be a slightly shorter talk than usual. Um, but what we're going to look at in this particular session is shunyata, emptiness, as I said, a natural progression, the way we've gone in terms of the talks, anatta, dependent origination, and now really into shunyata, into emptiness. Um, but before I talk to you about emptiness, I want to read you something which uh, I translated some extracts of, which is Atashantadeva, the Bodhicharya Avatara. Um, and most of these extracts are actually out of a chapter which comes immediately after the chapter which discusses Shunyata, emptiness. And, well, I'll just read it to you. I think the tenor of it will come across quite well. I am medicine for the sick and weary. May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to them in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. May I be their servant to give them all they desire, my body, my pleasure, my merit, now and forever, everywhere. I care nothing for them, I cast them aside to accomplish the aim of all beings. May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway for those who desire the other shore, a lamp for those who need a lamp, a bed for those who need a bed, a slave for those who need a slave for all beings. And may I be a wishing gem, an inexhaustible vase, a magic spell, a great medicine, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty for all beings. And as the elements of earth and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space, in many ways may I be the means of sustenance for, sustenance for the realm of beings in all of space until all have passed into nirvana. And by my merit may the blind see and the deaf hear, the fearful cease to tremble, the afflicted be consoled, and the weary be made content. May the sick be made whole again, those in bondage freed, and may the weak be strong and loving to each other. And as long as the earth and sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. I take upon myself the sorrows of the world, and may the world be happy. Okay, why did I read that to you? <laughs> It's not simply because it's a beautiful piece of writing, a beautiful poem. It is very poetic in the original. I'll get some copies of this, by the way, for you, so you can all have a copy of it. Um, but, as I said, it follows immediately on a chapter, which is, by all intents and purposes, quite a dense, almost seemingly intellectual chapter about the nature of emptiness and you know, the nature of what it means to perceive in this way. Well, actually, this particular po poem, the part that I've read to you, is the natural, direct outcome of the perception of emptiness. Big statement, isn't it? <laughs> you know, all this stuff that's in what I've just read is what arises really out of emptiness. In other words, compassion is the natural outcome of perceiving emptiness, and compassion is the means to discerning emptiness as well. And I'll say more about this you know, next week when I talk, give you a final talk on what I call the ethics of emptiness. But I want to say a little bit about what emptiness is and what it's not in Buddhist terms, because this is a much, much misunderstood term, and if taken wrongly, can almost sound nihilistic. Yeah. Everything is empty. Why bother <laughs> if everything is empty? Um, well, it's only empty of something very, very specific. It's empty of something I believe to be there. That is all. Remember I was saying the other day, I did give you a little taste of this the other day. It's empty of something we project continuously in thinking about ourselves and thinking about others. Um, and that is, in a sense, the idea of self. We project it. We push it onto things. Um, we look for it within others. You know, if you've got a self, you're really not going to change. If I've got a self, I'm really not going to change. This has a technical name. I don't want to go into too much into technicalities, but you've got to have a tiny flavour of it to, to begin to perceive this. 
The actual phrase is, when I perceive emptiness, I perceive emptiness of intrinsic existence. And that is all. Here endeth the tale. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and as difficult as that. Because in other words, what I'm really perceiving is the true nature of the way things are. Notice that statement. It's empty of intrinsic existence. Notice that statement. It just says it's what it's empty of. It doesn't say how we might conceive of it otherwise. You see that in this phrase? Yeah, emptiness is emptiness of intrinsic existence. I'm not saying how it is. All I'm saying is what it's not. That's all you're doing. So emptiness becomes, in Buddhist terms, particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, because emptiness is really used, although it's a, it's a term that you'll find in early Buddhism, emptiness becomes a way of perceiving the way things really are. Perceiving rather than conceiving. And what Nagarjuna and all the others who really push this whole philosophy of emptiness forward in the development of Mahayana Buddhism really saying is we're always conceiving rather than perceiving. Yeah, in other words, we move away from our experience and we view everything through the framework, through the grid of language. We're perceiving it all through the grid of language. When we perceive it through the grid of language, we believe there's something there. <laughs> yeah, because language does that, doesn't it? And I've kind of indicated some of this to you in other talks that I've given. Language, for the most part, and particularly a lot of English, actually, speaks in nouns. All right, so it gives you an idea of thingness, stability. You know, when we talk about ourselves, we usually think about ourselves often in terms of nouns as opposed to verbs. Now, I don't want to stretch this too far because it's not meant to be an intellectual discussion, but again, to come back to practicalities. However, when we are doing that, when we're directing ourselves into the perception of things primarily through language, we are conceiving. And all conception is wrong. <laughs> things can only be perceived, they cannot be conceived. And so, in a way, the philosophy of emptiness is meant to be the antidote to our conceptuality. It's actually saying what they're not. They're not possessing any kind of thingness at all. They're just going on. <laughs> so there's nothing static. Remember, this is giving you a world view of nothing static. The word I've used again and again and again in talks which I've been here, which is a world of process, which includes ourselves. Um, because ultimately what we end up with is not something which is discrete, isolated entities, all feeling cut off, but a world, in fact, where something like this could be true, of everything being interrelated. Yeah. The word, world of language cuts up. Anybody, you know, some of you I know come from different linguistic backgrounds. Each language cuts up the world slightly differently. It articulates it in different ways. You know, so when you speak English, you see the world in a particular way. When you speak French or German or Sanskrit or Pali or any of the Indian languages, Chinese, for example, it cuts up the world quite, quite differently. You know, I always wondered what it would be like to be Hopi Indian because they have no tenses in Hopi Indian. They have no past, present or future. Everything is kind of the eternal present. Um, so it must be a very, very different world, you know, the world that you live in with that kind of language. Um, conceptions of the self vary from culture to culture. Ours is a very dominant I-based type of language. You often find in Asia that the language that's used to think about the self is much more we. Yeah? It's a we conception of me as opposed to an I conception of me. Now that language does that, and this is one of the major things which, in a sense, is being tried to be thought about um, in this whole philosophy of emptiness. When we start to think about language and we think about the way it's articulating the world and the particular vision of the world, then we can see it's fantasy. 
If you can take one language, which will articulate the world in one way, and take another language, for example, actually colour concepts, I don't know if everybody knows this, you can compare colour concepts in different languages. Sometimes what we perceive in English as distinct colours, they only have one word for in another language. You know, there might have to be four colours all captured under one word, where we have distinct colours. Or as a Tibetan friend of mine once said, until I learnt English, I never knew I had certain emotions. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question, isn't it? What creates what? Whether the emotions are there, just waiting for a bit of language to come along, or does the language itself create the emotions? I mean, there's no real quick answer to that one. I'll just leave you with that little thought. <laughs> but in each case, what we're doing is dividing up the world in a particular way. And what Nagarjuna, along with the Buddha, is trying to do is show the, por the paucity of language, how poor it is in actually delivering reality to us. Yeah. And actually delivering it to us. Yeah. So... If you, if you take the rubric of what the Buddha is talking about, living in accordance with the way things actually are, well, language presents us a picture of the way things actually are not, <laughs> a lot of the time. Yet we're heavily linguistically dominated. Yeah? We talk all the time, don't we? Yeah, even, when we're not, you know, even when you're in silence, we're talking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we can't stop jabbering away. <laughs> There's something going on in our minds. Yeah, yeah. We 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 talk when we're silent. We talk when we talk to each other, even if I might not be talking to you. <laughs> um, we talk in our dreams. We we just can't stop talking. We're so linguistically immersed in language. Now, the serious point about this, and this point I want to get us back to, is none of this is reality, from the Buddha's perspective and from the Gautama's perspective. Emptiness itself is the perfect antidote for that because it's actually saying that when language presents us with a particular picture about the way things are, emptiness shows us the way it's not. And that means not a possession of a self, not a possession of any intrinsic existence, not a possession, possession of an essence to anything. When you start taking essences out of things, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you start taking essences out of things, everything becomes much more fluid. And the world becomes much more fluid. When you start taking out I, out of relationship, you know, two independent I's trying to relate to each other, and they just can't relate, um, because they're so centred and on themselves, um, then once you take out that sense of ionness in a solid sense, everything becomes much more fluid. Boundaries become much more porous. You know, the, the porousness of the boundaries is an indication of our interrelationship with all things, not just other human beings, but with all things. It's like being part of a vast hologram, you know, where every part, in some senses, is connected to every other part. And so nothing becomes separate. Nothing is separate and separable in this way. In fact, the notion of separateness is the illusion. And that is a picture that's presented very strongly in language. This idea of separateness. The, some painters and artists and that often have a perception of this, um, a very strong perception of this, once they start to drop linguistic conceiving. Um, one very fond one, in fact I was quoting it to somebody earlier on today, is Cezanne, the painter Cezanne, who obviously painted one mountain a number of times in the south of France, Mont Saint-Victoire in the south of France. He painted it again and again and again. He said by the time and he wrote this in one of his letters, after painting it for so many times, he said he wasn't sure who was watching who, whether he was watching the mountain or the mountain was watching him. You know, that loss of the sense of the boundary between I and other, even a non-sentient other here, uh, what was indicated. So it's as if the boundary, the thin, you know, the skin that we put between ourselves and reality, which is centred on this I, dissolves. It begins to break down and we feel this sense of interrelation, of interrelatedness. 
just in a very practical sense, <laughs> this is always seems to be very strange, um, just in a very practical sense, we particularly day-to-day, -day, often moment-by-moment -moment experience, we feel ourselves to be isolated individuals. And I talked a little bit about that in one of the other talks I gave you, and just how difficult that is to keep yourself together, being this isolated individual, being this I. It's a hell of a burden <laughs> in this world to be an I, to be a somebody, yeah, rather than a nobody, yeah, and that's what's really implied by it, being this person. Um, and we often feel ourselves to be independent, separate, yeah. Just a little minimum of reflection will show you, of course, this is a complete illusion. Yeah, there is nothing, uh, we're as helpless as babies most of the time, yeah, we are dependent virtually on everything for our existence, you know, for the clothing we wear, to the food we eat, to the air we breathe, you know, and there we are arrogantly thinking, I'm an independent I. <laughs> you know, it's a nonsense, the whole thing is a nonsense, we're, we're not separate from anything. In fact, as I say, we're almost helplessly, like a child, embedded into the world and in a relationship of total dependence. Now that's not bad. That is actually, in a sense, the, what realistically is going on. And it's only that overwhelming arrogance that often sees ourselves against the world, as opposed to the world, separate from the world, um, that allows us to exist in this illusion of you know, I, other, I, separate from everybody else. So hence, even in terms of human relationship, nothing really is entering into relationship. Um, I don't know if any of you know the work of Harold Pinter, the playwright? In Harold Pinter's plays, have you noticed how nobody ever speaks to each other in Harold Pinter's plays? They kind of speak at each other. <laughs> you know, and, and often it's very disjointed, because actually this is kind of what's going on a lot of the time in life. You know? people are not listening to each other, they're not opening to each other, they're kind of separate or li living in this illusion of separateness, folded back into themselves. Um, there used to be a French psychoanalyst called Jacques Lacan, who had a wonderful thing, image for analysis, what the whole process of analysis was, and he had it in a very nice little soundbite, which was very good. He said, when people first came to see me, come to see me, uh, to have analysis, uh, they talk at me, but not to me. And they talk at me, and they talk about themselves, but not to me. <laughs> After they've been coming for a while, they talk to me, but not about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, when they get it together, he said, and this is the end of analysis, it's actually being able to talk to me about themselves. <laughs> In other words, there's kind of disconnection there. And I think this is very important because actually that's, what, again, what often goes on for discourse in our ordinary world. There isn't a sense of connection. You're often not talking in, in, from any real place in life. Now, in a sense, although the kind of more technical way I've described this, this is what's all implied by the notion of emptiness, because it's opening us up to this wonderful world of interdependence opening up to connectedness as opposed to separateness. You know, separateness is this illusion which we hold on to. You know, I from you, table from me, and so on and so forth. Everything is separate. Being separate, I often think it has, you know, again, we're misled by a picture of language, it offers us, that things have essences. Such as, you know, for example, when we use a piece of language, like the word chair, the word table. Well, what makes all tables tables? It's a fair enough question, isn't it? You know, what makes the table, you know, say down in the refectory downstairs, a table, and also the desk that you write on a table? They look completely different. It might even turn a table in, you know, into, from a tea chest, turn it upside down and put a cloth on it, and it becomes a table. What makes them all tables? It's a picture that language offers to us, doesn't it? And so we tend to think about perhaps, and they certainly did this in India, and they have done it in the West for a long time, talk about essences of tables. There's something essential in all of these instances which makes them tables. <laughs> now this is just a nonsense, a function of language. 
That's all it is. It's just a function of language. But you can see how we can easily be misled. Now, that's a silly example. It has really no real consequences for most of us. Most of us don't, unless you're a philosopher or something, don't go around talking about essences of tables. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and finding the tableness of the table. I mean, philosophers actually talk like this. <laughs> However, let's put it in a much more serious thing. Um, when we start talking about, for example, beauty, ugliness, you know, these kind of things, then we start to take it much more seriously, don't we? Um, despite the fact, obviously, that a notion such as beauty is a convention, perhaps most of us, if you know anything about art, will notice the conventions of art, you know, the way it's changed over the centuries, on the beautiful. However, that is not our relationship with it normally, is it? You know, the beautiful is something you want to possess, generally. You don't kind of say, you look at the object or a beautiful person and say, yeah, I know it's a load of conventions, you know, it doesn't really possess that beauty. Um, yeah, take it or leave it, really. <laughs> Come on, we don't act like that, do we? <laughs> You know, the beautiful is I want it. You know, here we are, Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> you know, salivating. You know, it can be the thing in the window, it can be a beautiful person. You know. um, there we are, salivating, wanting it. You know, the, the ugly as well. Remember, craving works both ways, coming back to dependent origination. Craving works both ways. You know, I crave to avoid that which I find unpleasant to look at, you know, perhaps. Uh, there's a wonderful poem by Baudelaire, which is a reflection on a dead dog on a beach, um, rotting on a beach. Um, he talks about it as being the most beautiful object, swarming as if a jeweled, uh, as a jeweled carcass you know, with all the flies on it, <laughs> moving and that. Now, again, this is in a sense to shake our conceptions of what beauty is, you know, the so-called repulsive also is a mere convention that we have. It's not a real relationship. However, most of us go <laughs> like that when seeing something of that form or wanting to get away from it immediately. And so we don't kind of again say, well, I think I feel a little bit of disgusted, but you know, it doesn't really matter. You, know, you, can't, you try and remove yourself from it as quickly as possible. So these things have real, um, they have a real kind of dimension in which we normally operate. In other words, we think that whatever it is, and I'm just using two examples, I, mean, I could use myriads of examples here, but if something is beautiful or something is ugly, then it possesses beauty and ugly, almost as if it exists from its own side, yeah. as if it's coming out from, that very, you know, from the very object itself or for, from the very person itself. And if it's the case, and particularly with that which we find beautiful, we wish to grasp after it. Now, these are conventions. And so when, for example, Nagarjuna says the object is empty, it's empty of anything like an essence or a beauty existing from its own side to which we grasp after. So the question then becomes, what exactly are you grasping at? when you're grasping after, and just grasping after a mere convention. That is all. You're investing you know, all your attention, all of your salivation in wanting something which doesn't really possess what you believe it to possess. I'll give you another example, again another kind of more practical example. It may be that somebody does um, something bad to you then, because they have remorse about it, they might follow it up with a whole kind of load of you know, good you know, actions towards you. You might fix them at that point and say they are really a bad person. Again, it's a very kind of low-level example, but you fix them as being that type of person. Notice that. We impute to them an essence perhaps they don't possess. Equally, you might have somebody who has done a good action to you, following up by a whole set of bad actions, but you won't see it <laughs> a lot of the time, because you're possessed with the idea, or grasping after the idea, that this is a good person, 
So you've got the good and the bad person. No matter how many bad actions, and until it finally gets through perhaps, that the good person isn't so good, and the bad person isn't so bad. You know, because you know, everybody is malleable, flexible, in flux, in movement. You see this again particularly very prominently in you know, when something bad happens and the attribution of something, and I've probably all seen this, the attribution of evil. This person is evil to somebody. You know, as if there is an essence to them. Now, if that was the case, and this is the whole purpose of this practical teaching, it is a practical teaching, if we're grasping after that, in other words, images about ourselves, what type of person we are, hence the reason for bare non-judgmental attention to what's going on, in other words, not telling yourself a story about yourself, you know, which we all do, don't we? We all create narrative stories about ourselves and live those narratives. Um, because of the stories we've constructed. If we're telling ourselves a story, it's almost like imputing an essence to ourselves. I am this type of person. But sometimes we do it in full recognition. You know, I am that sort of person. It, and when you say that, it almost means, well, I can't possibly change. Yeah. There's no chance of me ever changing. I joked about this when we were talking about Anatta as well. Do you remember? I'm a pea hater. <laughs> and that's just the way I am. <laughs> yeah. Again, it, it's kind of really moving towards the idea that there can't possibly be change. Now, if this was the case, we might all just go home. If we were fixed essences, if the other was a fixed essence. This is why in Buddhist traditions, uh, throughout all of the traditions, there's generally stories. There's a whole load of stories, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism and, and Theravada Buddhism about wrongdoers who go on to achieve awakening. Yeah. Who actually go on. There's the case of Angulimala in the, for example, in the uh, Pali Canon, Angulimala, uh, and Anguli is a finger. He goes around collecting fingers to make a rosary out of. <laughs> yeah. He's got one more to get, so he tries to get the Buddha. Because <laughs> he wanted 108 fingers <laughs> for his mala. Um, then you have cases like Milarepa, Marpa, in the Tibetan thing, Milarepa basically through magical feats exterminates his family <laughs> you know, for all sorts of reasons which I go and go into but the whole point about this is there is no fixed essence so thus they can change like you and I can change so in other words when we see the world through the fixed idea of language and adhering to it not just as a convention now, I'm not saying anything, there's any problem with language. It does what it does extremely well, most of the time. But we all take it too seriously, in a sense. You know? uh, because I have a piece of language, that must be the way the world is for it. You know? We adhere to it ser too seriously. In other words, we mistake the conventional for the ultimate mode of being. Yeah? We mistake it for being the way the picture that's presented. And all language presents lovely pictures, doesn't it? Yeah, and the picture holds us captive in some particular way to looking at it. So this is seeing the conventional as the conventional. That is all. So language itself has no intrinsic existence. It's yeah, a dependent arising, just like everything else. It's a system of signs and conventions which changes, as we well know. You know language changes even in our own lifetimes. You know, words tr you know, transmute in terms of meaning into something else. Emptiness is, remember, that emptiness of any intrinsic existence. So language, because it's a dependent arising, is empty. And even dependent arising is empty of any intrinsic existence. You know, because it depends on you and I as perceivers, and the fact it's composed lots of links, which makes it dependent. So anything that has dependent origination... This arises, that arises, this ceases, that ceases, as its basic form, which is, you know, which is the Buddhist stance on the way things actually are. Anything that has that mode of existence lacks intrinsic existence. It all lacks intrinsic existence. Now, lest again you be thinking, oh, this all sounds terribly intellectual. Not. Because when we actually begin to hold and see what is going on as not possessing this static 
closed quality, emptiness brings a spaciousness to our perception of things. In other words, it allows the other to be seen in relationship to ourselves. Again, there's a fallacy, isn't there? You know, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what I do, because I'm kind of not doing anything to anybody else to harm them. <laughs> and it's a fallacy a lot of the time. You know, just our very being is doing something in this world because of our interrelatedness with it. You know, most of us find it very difficult to live without harm in this world. And I don't mean we go out and deliberately attempt to hurt people or things and that. We just have harmful forms of existence a lot of the time. A lot of that's being driven by grasping. As we know, when the Buddha, in the Four Noble Truths, or Four Ennobling Truths, when the Buddha actually talks about the most immediate proximal cause for the arisal of dukkha in our ordinary lives, then it becomes through grasping. What the whole notion of emptiness is to bring about is to make it clear what we're grasping after is a mere fantasy, a mere chimera. That is all it is. We're not really grasping after the real. We're grasping after the convention, mistaking it for the real, each time. So when we talk about emptiness, it's simply the removal of something I believe to be there. Just a little bit of technical stuff here. Because when I was undergoing my training when I was um, in Tibetan Monastery, one of the things we had to learn about was negation and the way things are negated. If you over-negate something, that ends up as nihilism. In other words, you take it out of existence altogether. If you under-negate, then you end up with something like essentialism or eternalism, that something is still there and going to go on. Always, through the history of Buddhist thought and practice, and really practice, the avoidance has been between those two extremes. Nihilism and eternalism. Something going on, a real self, for example, going from birth to birth, very traditional Indian idea, or something being completely obliterated, without residue, whatsoever. And the Buddhist position, as you probably know, is always this Majapatipad, which actually is the middle path, a middle way between these two extremes of thinking about things. Uh, all of our ways of thinking generally dichotomize into those two forms of extremes. You know, comes down into a very, very basic form, um, which is this form, is, is not. Now, Buddhism has always been a middle path, and the path of shunyata, emptiness, is a means to establish again the middle way between things. Interestingly, in Western logic, um, Aristotle, who basically invented logic, you know, talked about the path of excluded middle. There was no middle way. Something either is or it isn't. That is all. You know, so, actually, this is almost counterintuitive to often the ways that we think. I mean, I mean George Bushism, really, isn't it? I mean, you're either <laughs> for me or against me. <laughs> There's no middle way there. It's kind of very much in that notion. Again, and it's, you know, it's just a fallacy of the way that we think. We often do this. Either something is like this or it isn't like this. And we're constantly falling into this dualism, this dichotomization of reality. Now, the middle way is spacious. It's between the two extremes. It's a spacious way of allowing things to be and for ourselves to be. You know, the first time I ever heard that I'm a not-self, I felt so overjoyed. <laughs> because it kind of opens up a space and, God, what a relief <laughs> of not being a self in this solid sense of really having to determine who and what you are all the time. So you get a sense of spaciousness about living that isn't there when you have this solid project, which is you, and you foster this project <laughs> throughout all of the myriads of mistakes that we make about it. You know, um, and the world opens up into a degree of spaciousness as well. So it's not me as opposed to you, or me as opposed to this object. Me and world are interdependent. Yeah. Me and world sustain each other 
even our perceptions. You know, I couldn't perceive anything if there wasn't something to perceive. Where would my perception arise? Yeah. I can't hear anything unless there are sounds to hear. So actually sound and the hearing of sound are interdependent. And so on and so forth. I could make this much more explicit, you know, give you many, many, many more examples, but I'm not going to do that because I think you can probably draw your own conclusions here. So all of our acts, all of our so-called isolated individual acts are actually dependent arisings. And being dependent arisings, they have no intrinsic existence whatsoever. And... Nagarjuna actually humorously enough says in one of his texts, he says, of course there are going to be those that want to grasp after emptiness as being something. <laughs> you know, instead of, <laughs> instead of things, I've now got this something called emptiness, which I can grasp after. He said, these people are incurable. <laughs> <laughs> because he said, emptiness is empty. <laughs> emptiness is empty of any intrinsic existence. You know? And all you get into, if you try to find you know, what emptiness is, is a recursion of emptinesses. You know, just go back, you know, emptiness is empty, and emptiness of emptiness is empty, and so on and so forth, and just keep going back. And so you can't really grasp after emptiness, ultimately. And this, an important point here, this is the mode of being of all things, is that they're empty. And just empty of that one thing, which is swabhava, or intrinsic existence. And this is a very, very, um, if you really start to probe this, is a very heartening view of the world. You know, as I say, not separable, isolatable entities, but a world that works in, in total harmony, really, when it does, and if it's allowed to work properly. You know? and we kind of do this big, big report today on how, just how we're screwing up the whole planet, you know, made by 600 scientists. Um, because we don't allow it to operate. This isolated entity thinks it can deal and cope and mess with everything all the time. And hence there will be created problems um, for ourselves and all other species here. And in a way, a lot of that ways that we mess with things, and the way we do things, comes about through the idea that we can manipulate this thing that's out there. Now, most of us know, of course, we're dealing with systems. And so it's another way of putting it, if you want to put it in more modern terminology. Uh, what we've got is interrelated systems here. Nothing separable within it. You can't, if you take something out of the system, it suddenly makes the system go haywire. So, it's in a sense, although they didn't talk about it, it's a kind of proto-ecology as well. It's in, and this has been implied, actually, the notion of emptiness a lot too. Ecological systems, that they're empty of this kind of intrinsic existence. So what do they have? They have this functioning dependent existence, where you can't remove any one thing without creating some degree of chaos in the system. Yeah. I think I'm probably going to shut up there. <laughs> I've probably said too much already. Um, but this is a very practical teaching, and, and, and the last talk I'll give with you, I'll try and bring out even more of the practical dimensions of this. Because as I said right at the beginning, this particular poem and everything that arises out of it really is coming out of this notion of emptiness, which appears prima facie to be some kind of intellectual teaching, and it was never meant to be that way. It's just a very practical thing. Now, compassion, these are my final words, compassion opens us up. It's like the can opener that starts to open us up, taking us out of our isolation, um, starting to move us back into the world. So actually, understanding of emptiness is usually referred to in, in Buddhist traditions as either Panya and Pali or Prajna um, in Sanskrit where it's usually translated as insight, wisdom. Wisdom is a more preferred translation. It's not one I like. It's really about the insight about the way things really are. That's insight directly into the nature of reality. What one gets in the content of that insight is their empty nature. Their empty nature. Yeah, because things do not, going right back to the Buddha's original teaching, don't possess any static self. 
that is what's being opened up. The means to get there, and this is often what is referred to as a pyre or means, is compassion. I have a phrase in Tibetan, which I'll translate, which is that compassion without insight is sloppy. Insight without compassion is brutal. So you need the two to go together, hand in hand. So every movement of compassion in the correct way, you know, this kind of developmental model that you're practicing, is an opening up of insight as well. And the insight feeds back into the way that the compassion is developed. So the two do not remain, again, isolated entity. You know, what should I develop today? Should I do compassion or should I do insight? Well, actually, the two go together. Um, there's two symbols used in Tibetan Buddhism in particular. Um, you've probably seen them. There's Bela Navadra. Yeah. And they represent means and wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And they are never separated yeah, in Tibetan culture. And you never take the two apart. Even if they're just kind of there on your shrine or that, you have to have them touching. Because it's you know, the inseparability of, let's use the conventional phrase, of wisdom and compassion. If you separate them, you do at your own cost. I'll shut up. <laughs> so, any, any questions? Um, and emptiness, or it, would you say that it's 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 um, it's a tool that's developed in language to help sort of point at how things are? Yes. It's not. It's not a. It's not a something that exists in reality. No. No. Emptiness is just a tool. It's, emptiness really, uh, as I was saying, I don't know if I made it clear, emptiness is really trying to say what things are not. Yeah. It's not saying what they are. Because actually what they are and how they are is only perceptible. It's not conceptual. Yeah. It's, it's not susceptible to conceptualisation. Um, so all we have is this tool for the removal of that which we're constantly if you like, imputing to the things and beings around us, which is some kind of separateness, yeah. you know, usually in terms of essences, but often not. I mean, yeah. All this is going on, by the way, you know, naturally, not in this language that I'm giving it to you in, obviously. Um, this is just a way of trying, in a sense, to put it across. So emptiness is simply the absence. And remember I kind of gave you a brief snapshot of Nagarjuna's philosophy the other day, shut up. Stop talking about things. You know, try to perceive them. Yeah. You know, because that's our only access onto the real, is actually by direct, direct perception. Yeah. You know, not by inference and all sorts of other aspects yeah. that are usually to do with language. The only direct perception. So, so from that perspective then, of course, there isn't any, uh, there's absolutely no um, sense in, in, in sort of grasping onto um, emptiness as, as a you know as a mm. as a thing because it it's, it's does it doesn't exist it's just a, it's just a tool That's right. but I, I've I've been sort of interested in the in the um, parallels if you like or the sort of connection between this idea of emptiness and awareness mm -hmm. because in a sense you know everything well some some would say anyway that all of this only appears dependent upon awareness yeah. you know, whether you call that God or consciousness or you know or just awareness or, or whatever um, and of course that is something else that can't be grasped and it is also empty yeah um, but cognizant yeah so perhaps you could talk a little bit about that that parallel there between maybe what potential <coughs> everything that arises everything that is arising is in a sense arising on a field of awareness on a on yeah. ground of awareness yeah. that ground and awareness is not a something but in itself is a dependent arising because object and world you know, awareness and object arise at the same time my hearing for example if I'm um, yeah that, that I think some, well, some people would say that awareness exists in and of itself but, uh, yeah. but the world appears in that awareness or can do. Where does, you know, Buddhism as a whole, you know, especially Mahayana Buddhism, you know, because within Dzogchen there's very clear discussions of, of 
of that kind of ilk that awareness Yes, it's, it's, partly, it's partly about the languaging of it. Dzogchen has a very peculiar language, um, which I won't go into, but it has yeah. a very peculiar way of languaging what's going on in awareness. Personally, I don't actually find much difference between what is claimed in Dzogchen yeah. and what is actually going on in Vipassana. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing, languaged in different ways, and all yeah. it shows you is the conventions of language again, about the ways that we language them. Mahamudra, which is the other one, charm, they're all of a sense of a similar yeah. variety here. It's just what you're putting to the forefront. The, problem, the only problem I can you know, I'll admit to this, the problem I often have with Zodchen is it makes it sound like another thing, yeah, awareness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is actually, I don't think ultimately what's really implied, because it's saying that everything appears on the ground of awareness, and the ground of awareness wouldn't appear if there wasn't something to come into it, if you like, such as thoughts, emotions, feelings, and the world around us. So everything is dependent there. But there are experiences, aren't there? You know, deep meditative experiences mm -hmm. where there is nothing perceived, yet there is. Um, whatever. You know. Yeah, I mean, this, this is talked about. I mean, this is talked about even in early Buddhism. Yeah. This whole system, you know, you, you're moving from you know the world of you know desire to the world of form, and then to the world of formlessness. You know, essentially, that's the same distinction that's being yeah. made. You know, in other words, formlessness doesn't actually have any particular content to it yeah. as such. And so th these are quite a number of different ways of, I think, of language in the same phenomena. And that's the big problem. You know, because the moment we're trying to talk about our experience and bring it to language, you do it in a particular way, which presents us with a particular picture. Now, really to kind of undercut this whole thing, yeah. what I would say is, let's have the experiences. Let's get to the experiences. You know? And then if we language it in a particular way, then perhaps it might connect with our experience. But remember, the language is not the experience itself. No. Yeah, that's but, it, but in a sense, it is useful to have a framework or, or you know, a pointers in terms yeah. of for the meditative experience. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that's just, just to conclude, what your view is that there is no separate entity called awareness. So called awareness. No. It only arises... In yeah. relationship to the world That's right. itself. Okay. Yeah. And, and I would say that is actually the position of the majority of Buddhist schools. You know, things like Dzogchen and that, with their language, make it look slightly different. Yeah. 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 Okay, thanks. Well. Um, the, the Buddha, after his en enlightenment, continued to speak whatever language he did. Hmm. Uh, and language is learned, and it's you know, it's uh, set up habits, complicated mm -hmm. habits, uh, and and uh, we all have to use it to live together. Mm -hmm. So, and, and yet you point out, and this notion of emptiness assumes that language in some ways is misleading, deeply misleading. Mm -hmm. So, that could you comment on at a practical level and to live our lives, we must use language with each other, yeah. and yet the tool that we're dependent on is flawed and misleading, yeah. and and yet we can't do without it. No. I mean, you couldn't raise children, you couldn't cooperate, you couldn't do anything mm -hmm. without having a language to communicate with other people in a community. That's right. Yeah. So how do we relate? Okay, well. Uh, language which is deceptive but necessary. Yeah. I, I totally agree with everything you said there. <laughs> it's spot on. I mean, because that's exactly what the problem is. is. But if I could just, you know, whilst agreeing with everything, just say one thing. We take it all too seriously. <laughs> we take the language that we use too seriously. And what I mean by that, we don't see it as convention. We see it as being the way things actually are. Whilst agreeing with everything you said in terms of we couldn't communicate, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't live together without some shared sense of language and also language is culture as well. There's a tremendous amount of enculturation on that. Um, even thinking about our relationship with language, I mean the German philosopher Heidegger, for example, I mean, said that we didn't speak language, language spoke us. Mm. <laughs> you know, because we don't select the meanings any particular word has. 
um, or anything of that form. Um, so language is kind of speaking us in a way. And so all these private thoughts we think I have are all done in something which is speaking us. You know, we put it together in a certain way and you know, it's telling you certain things. Um, now, what, what I think there is going on here is an overinvestment in that language. Not that it's, it's flawed in the sense of not giving us reality, but it's not flawed for the purposes for which it's useful. But we don't see it as a system of conventions. We believe it. We believe the picture uh, with which it presents us, and you know, kind of all the stuff I went through in, in the talk. Um, when we believe that, we have a seriously distorted vision of the way things are. Yeah. A seriously distorted vision about the way things are. In a sense, what we're talking about here, um, certainly this is much more Mahayana Buddhism, but it's there in the early texts as well, is living, being able to live with language, but not over-invest it with this importance that we give it. In other words, not be, to be constantly believing the picture it presents to us. Yeah. Because it's presenting us often with a misleading picture. Yeah. The one about the self was a very good example, wasn't it? You know, I am happy. Presents me the idea of there's an I-ness there, which is static and stuck and, and can't change. And all the things that I talked about in some of the other talks. So in other words, it's living and using language a lot more lightly a lot more lightly. When you think about the greatest uses of language, often it's more about the unsaid than the said, isn't it? And I'm thinking here of poetry. Poetry actually brings us often into a relationship with things which is um, more about what is not said than what is explicitly detailed and said. And great poetry is something you revisit again and again and again. Actually, Gerald Manley Hopkins had a wonderful expression for it. He said, poetry was like uh, a tinderbox, you know, the old tinderboxes that you used to use for lighting things. It was something you struck your flint against, and it shot out a spark and lit up something for a second. And then everything went back into darkness. And that's what the poet did. You know? It was create, if you like, the tinderbox. Um, actually, in poetry in ancient Greece, it used to be called enigma. Yeah, poesis. You know, you know, these are the two terms that were used. You know, it was an enigma. And so great poetry, in other words, illuminates being for us for a second or two. And that's why if it's good poetry, you go back to it and read it again and again and again. Because it said something, you know, in other words, the spark casts up a, a different you know, reflection on being or a different lighting of being in each case. Yeah. Now, that's when almost language is starting to break down in some of this poetry. Yeah. When it's no longer a mere convention. Um, James Joyce actually had a good phrase about it. He said, you know, um, poetry was something which was um, basically trying to be music. In other words, it was more about the sounds. It was more about um, intonations and silences and resonances than ever was about what was explicitly stated. Yeah. that's when it becomes unconventional, <laughs> isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. When the conventions start to break down. Um, I could go on about this, it's one of my hobby horses, but I'm not going to. Um, because, I mean, in many ways, that this kind of poetic language also um, is language which truly says something as well. Whereas a lot of what is said is hollow in ordinary language. It has no substance to it whatsoever. So, cutting a long story short, it's really about, perhaps if we, even if we are using language, using it in more adventurous ways, um, but not taking it as seriously as we do. Taking the images and the pictures and the metaphysics you know, common sense language, as William James said, you know, it's just the metaphysics of the masses. <laughs> you know, because it's presenting again with a particular picture, which everybody buys into. Yeah. Even great Buddhist texts, I mean, Shantideva, this text I quoted you, is done in poetry, often. You know, as a way of trying to break down conventions. 
I don't know if I answered that. I tried to respond as much as I could. Thank you. Yeah, okay. I have a question. Um, uh, if I understand what you were saying, is uh, you can't say, for example, that something is is ugly or beautiful. Mm. So, in the same way, can we really say that a contact is pleasant or unpleasant? I mean. That's a good one. <laughs> no, ultimately you can't. They're both dependent on each other. Yeah, you can't say this is in essence pleasant or unpleasant because it's dependent, isn't it? In fact, eventually perhaps those things start to make less and less sense, those kind of judgments. Because, you know, it's a bit like saying it's a hot day and somebody says, no, it's a cold day. Because <laughs> it's down to, to just the mere perception of it. And so actually you're starting to break down, even in that way, ultimately, any essential reality to that particular experience. Okay. And then perhaps you drop the language altogether. <laughs> and you're left with pure experience. That's all. Now, in many ways, through, I mean, one thing that runs throughout the tradition is this movement always back to experience, just often without the languaging of it. Yeah. And this is why, for example, I mean, you know, Bill saying about the Buddha. You know, the Buddha used language to talk and teach and everything else, but he always said one thing. He said, Buddha's only point away. And they can't, it's like, you know, in other words, it's a bit like the signpost. You see the signpost and you can read what's on it, but you've still got to go travel on the journey. <laughs> you know, we read the signpost and think we've got there. <laughs> yeah. Because that's our relationship with language, because we're so embedded in it a lot of the time. So it's like a map rather than actually the territory. Really. Yeah, with all the inaccuracies that maps have. Yeah. And even the teachings themselves... Now this hopefully will make you think. Even the teachings themselves are approximations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why you find differences within the different traditions, because they're each approximating differently. Yeah. Within them. I was just reflecting when you were answering Bill's question, I was just reflecting that, you know, it's like, you know, wars and all the conflict, you know, in a sense you can see how that just comes out of this misunderstanding of the way things are. Mm. Um, but of course, it, is that you could blame language for part of that um, discord, but... but um, well, yes, I mean, part of that is, is language, but it's also, when I, say, when I say the word language, I mean everything which is within culture yeah. as well, and the sense of identity that's often formed through language and culture. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, when there's an attempt to form an identity, which is all what we're trying to do, that's our eyeness, isn't it? Yeah. An attempt to be something, to have an identity. Yeah. Um, because we feel we're nothing without a sense of identity. Well, it's exactly on a, on a kind of group psychological scale what's going on between nations often. Yeah. Yeah. We define ourselves against the opposite group because we're not like them, whichever that group is. Yeah. We don't do this, but they do. And so we're like this. And end up believing in that. <laughs> the same, but they're on this, just the other side of this arbitrary line. Yeah. Which appears on a, on a map rather than in the world itself. That's right, but we'll, you know, you know all these facile um, ways we have of sometimes dividing up different cultures and saying, you know, things about that culture. In other words, stereotyping them. You know, that's often, that's often been the way. Um, and that's a sense of group psychology, which is trying to create identity. Now, if that's going on in groups, that's certainly going on for us as individuals. We define ourselves against the other, yeah. rather than seeing our inseparableness from the other. We define ourselves again. Oh, I'm not like them. I don't do that. You know? And each of the terms, I'm not like that, becomes another religion. Mm. <laughs> you know? And you think about this because we all place these labels on ourselves and we're all trying to have the, you know, I am like this, I am this person, I'm a you know, vegetarian or whatever, I'm a Buddhist. You know, these are all ways of labelling ourselves and constricting ourselves. Yeah. They kind of think outside the box. Yeah, just one more question. So if everything is a, a process 
and would that mean that with direct direct perception of say a person you'd witness like the child in the middle age and the death and the decomposition of that form all at once I don't see any reason why you couldn't. I don't see any reason why you couldn't, because you'll see it in a sense having a glimpse into the process, and the process is one of arisal and dissolution. Right, yeah, like seeing, just like witnessing fully that things, that something is a process. Mm. You hear about this in poetry and different art, where like yeah. you witness the whole, the whole movement of life, so to speak. That's right. I mean, you see, I mean, in a sense, even some of the meditations you'll find in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is you know the four foundations of mindfulness, some of those are in a sense starting to look at the process. You know, you are nothing other than this bag full of stuff right. that's operative. Strip that away, and you're still nothing other than the ligaments and the tendons and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very realistic. It's a very real um, glimpse into what we actually are. You know, without devaluing but without overestimating either yeah. and I think it's 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 realistic and grounding to bring us back to how we actually are in this world yeah. and we are all on this process from life to death yeah. we can't evade it yeah. there's no, none of us are going to evade it yeah. and we're all going through that process at the moment in time now, that could be a call pause for morbid thought, which I don't think it should be. It's actually liberating, again. It's a liberating thought. Um, they have these characters in, in the Buddhist realms, you know, in, in the kind of six realms, the devas. You know, the devas have infinitely long lives. They don't last forever, but they have infinitely long lives, so they don't do anything. Because <laughs> they think there's always tomorrow. <laughs> 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 now we can act like that, can't we? You know, um, and often in Tibetan culture, for example, this is done the, the idea you know two reflections. You know, the first reflection is there is one certainty, death, one uncertainty, when. Yeah. And again, that's not a cause for morbid brooding, it's just a basically get us moving. Do something. If we had infinite immortal lives, we wouldn't do anything. <laughs> would we? <laughs> Why would we do anything? <laughs> terribly overweight. <laughs> we wouldn't be trying to manipulate systems either. Pardon? We wouldn't be trying to manipulate systems. No. <laughs> but in this idea, I mean, this is a different way to hear it. In a sense, in knowing our mortality, in knowing our mortality and confronting it, um, we're opening up to meaning. You know, meaning exists because we're mortal, because we make this choice as opposed to that choice. I do this instead of that. You know, and so we're constantly, in a sense, um, generating meaning in our lives. You know, often I think it's a big mistake because people think, well, what's the meaning of life? Wrong question. It sounds like it's a thing that's in a corner again. You know, the meaning of life. <laughs> again, I mean, a very useful quotation. Heidegger says, the only meaning of life there is is given to you by the people that write your obituary. Because <laughs> they sum it all up and said that was the meaning of their life. <laughs> you know, Meaning, as a, as a, as a, again, as a process, and as, as something which we experience, is occurring now because of the choices I make, even if I don't bring it to cognizance all the time, that I am mortal. Yeah. Because if I wasn't, then why would I choose this as opposed to that? Yeah. There would be no reason for it. It's only because of our notion of finitude that we make the choices in life we do. And that's all the good ones as well as the bad ones, as well. Yeah. And that is meaning, and the way we generate it in life. So this thing about death and the whole process and that is, is something, again, which will open up a degree of spaciousness. If you can actually accept it, you, know, you get on and do it. You know? And particularly in Buddhist cultures, often this reflection was there to get you doing practice. You know, do it now, because you might not have another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, well, I believe it's almost supper time. <laughs> so let's just have a couple of minutes of silence. Now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.